an interesting observation that, that kind of came to me recently is that in the scriptures, this is why in the scriptures, you do not find any priests who are not human. Every single priest in the scriptures is a human being. Every single one of them. Because if you think about it, after all, why would you need a non-human priest? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning, if we were to give it a title, uh, is Our Human High Priest. And in looking at our human high priest, the subject matter I want to touch on today is a subject that is especially uh, dear to our hearts because it has to do with the sanctuary truth. And of course, as soon as I mentioned the, the sanctuary truth, uh, we realize immediately it's one of the most important and foundational truths that we have as a people. Uh, commonly referred to it as the sanctuary doctrine. And I kind of uh, shy away from using that if, if you've heard me speak about doctrine, because many times when we doctrinalize living truths, we reduce them to technicalities. So I don't want to refer too much to it as a doctrine as such. But to many people, and uh, uh, in our understanding, the sanctuary truth to many people is referring to a building or a structure in heaven. You know what I'm talking about? This is, this is what it amounts to in a lot of people's minds. So, such is the case that if a person questions or even doesn't believe that there is a building, a sanctuary in heaven, he is immediately classed as a heretic maybe or has one, someone who has departed from the truth. It seems to revolve around that. And there is a lot more to the sanctuary, of course, than just a building in heaven. Now, by all means, I believe there is one there. This is not my way of kind of sidestepping the issue. But it, that is not the end of it. That's, that's a very shallow and simplistic view of a very important and living reality. The ministration that happens in the sanctuary is what the sanctuary is all about, really. And the ministration that happens in the sanctuary cannot take place without a priest in the sanctuary. And so this puts the focus on the priesthood, particularly the priesthood of Christ. So far from being a doctrinal position, this is actually a living truth, a reality. And this is why we are told that the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. So the sanctuary is all about what the priest is doing. What the priest is doing is he is offering, he is ministering. And the purpose and the whole point of his ministration and his offerings is to deal with one thing, and that is the problem of sin. This is all very well summarized for us in a Bible passage, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. And this is what it says. It puts it all together very neatly in one verse. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here it is. It tells us that priests, of course, here it's referring to the earthly priesthood, which was a type. Priests are taken from among men for men. This is who they minister for. And what they do is that they offer gifts and sacrifices, all for the purpose of? sins. Here's a question. Who needs atonement? Because this is what the purpose of the offering of the sacrifices is. Uh, who needs atonement for sin? 
Okay, all of us, that's correct. I want to be a bit more general, I guess. It is humanity, correct? That's the only class of beings, of creatures in the universe that we know of that require atonement for sin because we're the only ones who have a sin problem, correct? And this is why you will find there's very an interesting observation that, that kind of came to me recently, is that in the scriptures, this is why in the scriptures, you do not find any priests who are not human. Every single priest in the scriptures is a human being. Every single one of them. Because if you think about it, after all, why would you need a non-human priest? Who would he minister for? Correct? Because his work is to offer gifts and sacrifices, and the purpose is for sin. And this is why I find that humanity alone requires that. And so I want to explore that a little bit closer as to how it relates to our high priest today. Of course, as uh, we understand in the fall of mankind, uh, the wiles of Lucifer resulted in Adam coming, losing dominion and coming under the power of sin and of Satan. Originally, Lucifer desired to be the prince and lord of this world when it would be created. The father had informed him that it was given into the hands of Christ. So through deception and deceit and lies, he usurped and took over that position and occupied that place where he became the prince of this world or the representative of this planet. We see that very clearly in a number of places. The story of Job is one very popular one. You remember when Satan went to heaven? God told him where you come from. And Satan said, I've come from going to and fro in the earth. He claimed his earth as, uh, this earth as his. And God did not contest that with him. And his purpose and his reason in being in heaven, occupying the place that Adam should have occupied as the representative of earth, his whole purpose is to cause trouble and heartache to the human race. We see that very clearly in the story of Job. And his was his work. His work was to accuse humanity day and night. And it's because of that, that God gave this promise, the promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that things would not remain that way. God would intervene. He says there, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so the gospel, brothers and sisters, is summarized in this verse. If you were to summarize it in one word, it is summarized in that word, the seed. And when we talk about the seed of the woman, the promise here has to do with what kind of a being? A human being. We cannot miss that. You see, it was humanity that lost out to Satan. And so it would be a human being who would win back the battle and defeat Satan. That's why the promise had to do with a human being. A human was to come, and this human would crush the serpent's head. That's the promise that was repeated to Abraham, the seed. It was repeated to Moses as one of thy brethren. The prophet would arise. Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And in the Gospels, we find the introduction loaded with the human genealogy of the seed that had come, Christ. There is a very important element in the plan of salvation. That is the humanity of the Son of God, because he had to come as a man to win back what man had lost. That's why the scripture refers to him also as the second Adam. And so the hope of all humanity all through the ages was looking forward to the day when that human would come. Of course, this human would not just be 
any human. It was the Son of God who volunteered to humble himself and come to the very place where we are to become our human champion. He would be the champion who would take on Satan and face him down and single-handedly defeat him. That's the promise of the seed. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. We have a human champion, brothers and sisters. Many times, I know in, in, in discussions in the basement, we argue about, you know, the divinity of Christ. Are you people saying he's divine? But what about him being the son? But the humanity of Christ is the key component of the plan of salvation in the gospel. Everything actually depends on that. And so the seed arrives, and of course we know he defeated Satan. And in defeating Satan, he did that through go by going through a certain experience, as we shall see. And I want to bring us to the point where it all links together with the sanctuary, as we we're talking about at the beginning. Hebrews 2, 14 to 16 says the following. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. One of the reasons why Christ had to come as a man to be one of us, to be one of our brethren, to take part of our flesh. I'm not going to get into all the debate and details of what flesh he took. He was a man. The reason was that he might go through an experience that he could not experience otherwise. Isn't that right? He had to die. He could not die just like that. He had to become a man. And in order for him to, be, to, to accomplish that, he had to go to the very stronghold of sin and Satan, which was death. And so he died, and the purpose of his death here, it says, through death he would destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That is the champion that we have. He took on Satan 2,000 years ago and defeated him. And then it continues, it tells us, verse 15, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. I don't want you to miss the point that the author of Hebrews is making here. When he says verily, we know what that word means. What else does it mean? Truly, Truly right? He's making a point here. He says, through death he defeated him that had the power of Satan. He delivered those who were subject to bondage because truly or verily, he didn't take the nature of angels, he took the seed of Abraham. In other words, the evidence of his success in his mission and the fact that he defeated Satan, the evidence is he did it as a man. That's his point. He says he accomplished all that as a man. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't a supernatural being. He was a man. He was the seed of Abraham. You begin to appreciate and realize, you know, the humanity of Christ is really important. That's the point that this author is making right here. Verily, truly, he did that as the seed of Abraham. And this opens the door for us to appreciate some of the magnificent things that Christ had accomplished. Satan was defeated by one of us, a human being like us. And as a result of that, things changed on earth and in heaven. Because the seed is referred to in a number of places in, in the scriptures. Revelation is another place which refers to that. And I want to just touch on this verse a little bit because it gives us an insight as to the benefits and results of what Christ accomplished as a man. In Revelation 12, before you start reading ahead, we see the woman 
begins that chapter with a woman standing in the picture there summarizes it. Remember, the woman standing on the moon, clothed in the sun, on her head is a crown of 12 stars. And this symbol, this uh, representation of the church is represented as having, uh, being pregnant and delivering a child. And verse 5 tells us, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Of course, this is here symbolizing Christ, the seed of the woman. And it summarizes his whole mission very quickly and briefly. He came to earth, and then he was caught up to God and to his throne. And then something happened after that. Verse 7 tells us, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. I don't want to spend too much time here, but from the context, this war that happened in heaven, brothers and sisters, followed the ascension of Christ. Amen. You realize that? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there was no war at the beginning. There was, where Lucifer was cast out and so on and so forth. But the context here is dealing with something that happened as a result of the coming of the seed as a man. And when he went to heaven as a man, something happened in heaven. There was a showdown, and the showdown had to do with Satan and his place in heaven. It says this war happened, and then Satan lost his place in heaven. Specifically, it says, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. You know what that means? That up until that point, they had a place where? In heaven. How long was that for? From the fall of Adam till Christ ascended back up to heaven as a man. That is 4,000 years of earth's history where Satan had a place in heaven. You know what his place in heaven was? As the representative of, of earth. And his work in heaven was to accuse the brethren day and night. So when Christ came as a man and defeated Satan on earth, he went back to heaven as a man. Now he is the new representative of humanity and he casts Satan out of that position. And Satan now no longer has a place in heaven. Amen. He is not happy about that eventuality. And as we know, he comes down to earth very upset. But I don't want us to miss this point that is emphasized here. Let's go on. Verse 9 says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Amen. And here's the evidence. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Hallelujah. Amen. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, this voice in heaven shook heaven and was heard by all the inhabitants of heaven. Now is come salvation and strength, the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ. And here's the evidence. Satan's place has been removed. He has lost his position. Christ is in that position. No longer do we have an accuser of the brethren that accuses them before God day and night in heaven. I'm not saying he doesn't accuse the brethren anymore. He does it here on earth. But he lost the ability to do that in heaven Amen. with any right. Christ had obtained that right. Christ is the second Adam. And it says salvation has come. What does salvation mean? Deliverance, Deliverance from sin, correct? So up until that time, does that mean that salvation had not yet come? 
The answer, of course, is a resounding yes. For 4,000 years, humanity looked forward to the promise and the fulfillment of salvation that would be accomplished by the seed. It was only accomplished when the word was made flesh and he condemned sin in the flesh, correct? Did anyone ever accomplish that before? For the first time, sin and Satan were defeated by a man. Only Christ accomplished that. And so when he went to heaven as a man, this voice, this pronouncement is made as heaven says, now has come salvation. Deliverance from sin has been accomplished by a human being on the behalf of the entire planet. It was not some event that was solitarily happening in the corner, brothers and sisters. This was the event of the ages. This was the burden of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now has come strength, and then the, uh, sorry, salvation. And then it says, and strength, what's that talking about? Power. Power now is available to man over all the power of the enemy as a result of what that one human being accomplished. We have, brothers and sisters, if you think about that, heaven has authorized in a loud voice in heaven says now there's come power and that power is on the behalf of mankind it is given to us heaven authorizes it's not like some preacher gets up and tries to empower the congregation and say brothers and sisters we have power and encourage us it's from heaven this is what this announcement is about and then it says the kingdom of our God that's the restoration of dominion Christ established that, and he is the new representative. And then it says, and the power of his Christ, or his anointed. Christ is that man who powerfully defeated Satan and accomplished that. <clears throat> and so the answer to the accusations of Satan that had been accumulating for 4,000 years of accusing the brethren day and night, that's a very, very long list. That's a big big amount of accumulated accusations. They're all answered in this one man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the answer to that. And that's what the next verse tells us. Verse 12, we're all familiar with that. And uh, verse 12 is not on the screen. Verse 11, I'm sorry, we all know it. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death. What does it mean when it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb? The blood is what? The life. And I find it very interesting. So in other words, it's the life of the lamb or the life of Christ. The life of Christ is what accomplished victory over sin and over Satan. That life as a human being is where Christ is right now in heaven and he's doing something with that life. He didn't come and live that life so that he could go to heaven and Keep it there. The whole purpose of accomplishing that is so that this life can be given to who? Amen. To his people. And I find it very interesting how that verse is worded. It doesn't say, and they will overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb. What's it say? They overcame. What tense is that? Past tense. In the life of Christ is already the accomplished victory over sin and Satan. We don't have to go out and defeat a defeated foe again. Isn't that right? They overcame him by the life of the Son. A human being, Son of God, and not just that, but also the Son of Man. That's what the blood of the Lamb means. And that's the promise of salvation that was given all the way back through Eden. That's why the Bible says, through death he destroyed him that had the power of death. 
that is the devil. Now, these aspects are so important and beautiful, but they naturally and progressively lead to a very important aspect as well when it comes to what we're talking about, the sanctuary. That's why I wanted to lay some foundation because the link is very, very important to realize. We miss something in not realizing it. We already looked at this verse. Remember verse uh, 16, Hebrews 2.16, it says, for verily or truly, right? He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And this is the evidence that the author is using that the defeat of Satan is legitimate. It was done by a human. And then he goes on to say, verse 17, wherefore, wherefore means what? Therefore, or for this reason, thank you. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And here's the reason. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Do you see the link here? The humanity of Christ, brothers and sisters, is the basis and foundation for his priesthood. Isn't that right? His defeat of Satan as a man is what qualifies him to be a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God. That's according to the author of Hebrews. This is the, this is the point he's making. Saying, listen, he defeated Satan and he did that as a man. And because of that, therefore, now he is qualified to be a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Do we realize what it means to believe that Christ is our high priest? In other words, if Christ had not become a man, would he have been able to become our high priest? I want you to think about that. He would not. Because part of his work as a priest is to offer, to offer something. We're going to see that in a minute. And the purpose of offering something is to deal with sin, correct? The sin problem. To atone for sin. But in order for him to atone for sin, he had to first defeat sin and the author of sin. He had to find the remedy and the solution for sin. And we find the remedy and solution for sin in one place and one place only. It's not in the law. It is in the life that condemned sin in the flesh. Only one human being accomplished that. Christ. He did that as a man. That is the strength of his ministration as a priest. That is the key component of his ministration as a priest. Very, very significant point. Because, like I said before, <clears throat> there, is, there seems to be some, some confusion I, I have encountered over the priesthood of Christ, particularly when it began. So that's why I want to I build a case for it. And this confusion is, is a common one. I, I, I did not understand things the way I do now. Uh, I, I assumed... And I think a lot of people make this assumption that Christ had always been a priest ever since the beginning. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands and who believes what and so on and so forth. But this is a common belief because we understand that the priesthood of Christ is, is of great significance and it's very important. And so there is this assumption that, well, if it's so important, it's always been there. But I want to tell you something. Christ only became a man 2,000 years ago, not before. 
And it's his humanity that qualifies him to be a priest. Because after all, what good is a non-human priest to human beings? Right? The angels don't need priests. No one needs priests except us men. That's why the Bible tells us that every priest is taken from among men. That's why he had to be the seed of Abraham and he had to accomplish that defeat of Satan. And this is, of course, is all encompassed in this prophecy about Christ's priesthood that we know uh, that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? Everybody knows that. That's, that's great. That's the humanity of Christ that is outlined there. This prophecy, of course, is in the book of Psalms. Let's read it, Psalm 110, verses 1 to 4. It says there, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. This is a prophecy, of course, spoken through David. <clears throat> and it is about Christ. And it says the Lord there, this is... The, the Hebrew name for God, we know it in English as Jehovah, or in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And he is speaking here, of course, to Christ. When did this happen? Have you ever wondered about that? When did the Father tell the Son, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? And then not only that, but it continues. It tells us what else happened. Verse 3 says, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Verse 4 is what we're familiar with, right? The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When did this happen? When did the father tell his son, Son, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That happened, brothers and sisters, after he had accomplished the defeat of sin and Satan. This was spoken to him as a man. And God revealed that to David way back there in the Old Testament. He revealed that to David as a prophecy, as a promise that one day this seed would not just come, would not just defeat Satan, but he would be uh, glorified. He would be exalted to the place of sitting on the right hand of God. And in that place, he would occupy the position of a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't realize the exalted position that humanity has gained as a result of the Son of God becoming one of our race. We have automatically become the most honored race in the entire universe of God. If you think about that, the most honored and privileged race in the entire universe of God, in all of its history, is our human race. Our miserable, messed up, sin-infected, weakened human race. Not in this condition, of course. But you realize that the lowest of the low have been made the highest of the high. There is no other class of creatures that sits on the throne of God with Him except his son. And his son happens to be now one of us. Wow. Just let your mind dwell on that for a minute. You know, we read about angels in, in, the, in the scriptures and, and cherubims and seraphim and wow, amazing, mighty angels and wings. And, and, and we feel a sense of inferiority, right? There are greater beings than us with maybe abilities or intellects, whatever it might be. Here, here, is, here is a news item, brothers and sisters. It's a human being who sits on the throne with God. Amen. 
not an angel. Praise God for that. And of course, we know that this happened when Christ ascended because it says there, in the day of thy power. We just read in Revelation, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ. That's the day of his power. And that was revealed to his church on earth on that day when power descended from heaven on what we know as the day of Pentecost. That was a revelation of the coming of the power of Christ. Here is the power of Christ bestowed to his people. Here is the evidence of the defeat of Satan coming right down from heaven. And this is where Christ was at that time occupying that place. He was glorified and ordained to be the high priest of his people. That's the power of Christ. And so it's very important to realize that because sometimes people read this passage and they misunderstand it because it's written in the Old Testament. They think this is when it was fulfilled. That is not the case. This is a prophecy. In other words, David was shown a vision of what actually happened on the day of Pentecost in heaven after Christ went there as a man. And so, of course, the other aspect here is that it says he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's a few things we conclude straight away. Melchizedek, of course, had to be what class of creature? He had to be a man, right? There's a lot of debate over Melchizedek. I'm not going to get into it. And there's all kinds of beliefs out there about who Melchizedek was. Some of them are bizarre. Some of them are, are a bit uh, not as bizarre. But there's a variety of ideas. Whatever it is, you have to come to the conclusion that Melchizedek was a man. There's only human priests in the scriptures. You only need human priests. That's where the sin problem exists. You don't, a supernatural being to be a priest is useless to human beings. Even Christ himself could not become a high priest until he first became a human being. And so it's important to be able to rightly understand the scriptures. Otherwise, we throw all kinds of problems into the mechanics of the science of salvation, into the gospel. There is, there is certain rules in, in the gospel, the plan of salvation that God has set up. And so in Hebrews 7, it tells us that as well. Hebrews 7, verse 28, For the law maketh men high priests, referring to the law, the Mosaic law, the, pre, uh, the Levitical priesthood. The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, that's what we just read, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. When it says here, the word of the oath, that's the oath that God speaks to His Son. It says, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And of course, another point you know, we don't want to forget as well. When it says, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, the timing of when that was spoken to Christ, he must have had enemies, right? And God is telling him, sit on my right hand, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. In other words, there's a controversy. There are enemies of Christ. And part of his work as a high priest is to deal with that as well. It says this word of the oath, which was since the law. If you look at other translations, it actually explains it a little bit better. It says since the law, which means after the law. In other words, this is, this is what the author is trying to say. It indicated that something was coming. God revealed that through David. This is what Paul is referring to here. He says the oath that was revealed to David, this prophecy that David wrote down, he wrote it down after the law of the Levitical priesthood had, was in place, thus indicating that something greater was going to come, something that would supersede and excel this Levitical priesthood. He says, listen, the word of the oath, which was after the law, makes the Son 
consecrated forevermore. It's indicating that there was something coming greater than what was there through the law. That's the point that he is trying to make here. And so from this we also learn that in the priesthood of Christ, there are two aspects or two stages to this priesthood of Christ. There is the stage of promise, and there is the stage of the fulfillment of the promise. That promise of Christ being a priest is actually contained in the promise of him coming as a seed. Because part of coming as a seed is not just to defeat sin and Satan, but then to minister as the seed and give us the benefits of his victory. You with me? And so it says the seed will come and will crush the serpent's head. Part of that promise contained in that promise is that he would be a priest to give that victory to his people, to minister, to offer that victory. And in so doing, he is making atonement for sin. That is why we are told that a correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. The inverse is also true. An incorrect understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the destruction of the foundation of faith, right? You with me, yes or no? Okay, I don't want to everyone to fall asleep. And so these two stages, the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. The period of the promise occupied how many years? 4,000 years of Earth's history. That's the promise. That was fulfilled 2,000 years ago, and today we're living in the fulfillment of the promise. <clears throat> That's why what God says will happen, happens when God says it will happen, not before. In other words, uh, there wasn't any uh, mystical coming of the seed before he came as a man. There wasn't some kind of a spiritual fulfillment of the seed to Abraham or to Moses or to Isaiah before the word was made. Flesh, because God had said the seed will crush the serpent's head one day. The serpent's head was not crushed in any way, metaphorically or spiritually, for 4,000 years. It was accomplished once, and that once is sufficient. It doesn't have to happen again. That's important to also keep in mind. Zechariah mentions that as well. Zechariah 6.13. We're all familiar with this verse, I think. We could all recite it together. But here is what it says. Even he, referring to Christ as the branch who would come, even he shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. What's that referring to? Here is what it says. And shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. We like to use the last part of the verse, but the whole verse is very good. So Zechariah was looking forward to the time when that oath would be fulfilled. He was looking forward to the time when that promise would be realized. He was looking forward to the time when Christ would become a priest. In other words, when Zechariah wrote what he did, was Christ a priest yet? No. It says he would be a priest. Brothers and sisters, you cannot rightly appreciate the priesthood of Christ if you don't understand its link to his humanity. You cannot truly appreciate what he is ministering and offering, what he is trying to accomplish, if you don't realize that it's intimately tied and linked with his humanity. The two are inseparable. Now, as I said before, there is an idea that exists, and I, I used to think that, so I'm not saying this is like, uh, you know, something that is uh, uh, uncommon. We, I think most people assume that, that Christ was a priest before the cross in heaven that Christ was a high priest 
in heaven before the cross in the heavenly sanctuary. Now this idea sounds very good because it seeks to honor Christ and say being a priest is so important, he must have always been there as a priest. And it kind of, it kind of reminds me of, of some of the attempts of, uh, of our brothers and sisters who believe that God is a trinity. And they say, no, well, you know, Christ, Christ has always been there. And so to, to uphold that idea, they deny his sonship as the begotten son. In so doing, thinking that they are doing him honor and service. Isn't that right? That's a very similar aspect. You know, we think, oh, we're honoring Christ by saying, well, his priesthood extends before and after the cross. It sounds very nice and noble, but it actually destroys the plan of salvation. It makes his humanity useless. If Christ could be a priest before he took on humanity, then tell me, why in the world did he become a man? Right? And what good is a divine priest, the Son of God? He was a divine being. What good is that to poor old human me down here? You see what I'm saying? It throws out the mechanics of the plan of salvation. And it's for this reason that God gave to mankind a system of earthly priesthood to point forward to the real priesthood that Christ would one day accomplish. You see, you can't have multiple priesthoods running at the same time. We find that in scriptures, and we're going to see that. Hebrews chapter 7 uh, tells us that. Hebrews chapter 7 is our next slide, which is right there. Hebrews 7, verse 11 and 12. It says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Paul's argument here is very simple and yet very profound. He's saying if the Levitical priesthood was good enough, then why was there a need for another priest to come? Isn't that right? The priest was coming. The priest was not there just yet. And then verse 12 says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the, of the law. Which priesthood was changed? The Levitical priesthood. Which law was changed? The entire law that had to do with that system. So not just the law of the priests, the entire package would be superseded by the one who would come. Not just the law of the priests, the law of the sanctuary, and everything associated with that system that was given as a type and as a shadow. In other words, his point is something better is coming because that system was inferior and could not make anything perfect. And he's saying, if it could, then why was there another priest to come? But the fact that there is another priest to come shows the inferiority of that system. So the priesthoods are consecutive. The Levitical priesthood precedes the priesthood of Christ. It points forward and typifies the priesthood of Christ. In other words, they were not running together simultaneously at the same time. And the reason for that is outlined in this verse, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 8. Notice what it says carefully. Hebrews 9, 8 says, For the, uh, the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. The people, brothers and sisters, living under the Aaronic priesthood, according to this verse, had no access to the heavenly sanctuary. 
Right or wrong? Just think about that for a minute. Because we believe the sanctuary truth is a pillar foundational truth. Paul is saying that is very true, but listen, in order to appreciate the impact and the meaning of what this sanctuary truth is, here is a news flash. All through the Old Testament time, while the first tabernacle was standing, the way into the holiest or into the heavenly sanctuary, that's the holiest, the way there was not yet made manifest. It was not apparent. It was not seen. And therefore, it could not be utilized. That is why, because there was no priest yet in the heavenly sanctuary, it's for this reason that God gave an earthly priesthood to point out that which, which was to come. And that's why when that which was to come came, uh, mentioned in the book of Hebrews as the time of reformation. When the time of reformation came, when I'm talking reformation, I'm not talking about Martin Luther, okay? I'm talking about the time of reformation of the book of Hebrews. That's when Christ came. When that time of reformation came, the system of the Levitical priesthood with all its associated services all came to an abrupt end when that veil in the temple was rent. That is why we now have the reality of the heavenly sanctuary. And so long as the earthly tabernacle was standing, people's attention and faith could not be directed to the heavenly. That's why God had to remove it in this marked and graphic manner. He ripped the veil. And so what did, the, what did the Jews do? They sewed it up and kept on going. Very, very important verse. And then it also gives us another insight as to what that actually means. Hebrews 9, a few verses later in the same chapter, verse 15. It says, and for this cause, he is the mediator, speaking of Christ, of the New Testament or the New Covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Christ's death dealt with all the sins that were accumulating under the first testament or covenant. Isn't that what it's saying? All the sins that for 4,000 years of earth's history, 4,000 years of humanity, all these sins that were accumulating they were not dealt with until Christ came and died as a man. Now, don't get me wrong. The people who come to the sanctuary at the time, they were promised that if they did uh, follow the steps and instructions that God gave them, they would be forgiven. And that's exactly what God did. He forgave them, each and every one of them, if they truly did that. But there is a deeper aspect, brothers and sisters. The problem with sin is not just about forgiveness. Sin was not yet dealt with. The problem of sin was still an outstanding problem. It would be dealt with when Christ would come as a man and take on sin and Satan and defeat sin and crush Satan's head. And this is what this verse is saying. He redeemed all the transgressions that were under the first testament. He dealt with the sin problem once and for all. And that's what he does now as a priest. That's what qualified him. It's his death and his defeat of Satan as a man. Hebrews chapter 5 summarizes that beautifully. And the, the book of Hebrews is all about the priesthood of Christ. It's kind of, you know, a dissertation on that particular topic. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6 down to 10. As he saith also in another place. Notice the sequence here that the, the writer is using, linking these 
events together. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers, who's this speaking about? Christ. So when he was a man, now he's coming to the time when he was a man, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He's using the fact and the experience of Christ as a man to introduce us to something. And then it, it uses very interesting language. It says, you know, crying and tears and supplications. That was not a fun experience, was it? It was a painful, hard experience that Christ went through as a man. And then it says in verse 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Verse 10, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see the sequence here? He is called of God a high priest because of what he went through and what he accomplished in the days of his flesh. This trying experience where he cried with supplication and tears to his father and he was heard. And the things that he learned, even though he was a son, all these things are what qualify him to be a faithful high priest for us. You know, that gives us comfort. That gives us assurance that the Son of God did not have, you know, a, a cruisy trip as a man. He had a hard time. And he had temptation and trial. And he experienced them and he defeated them. And he knows now as a priest how to help you and me. That is why it is vital that you have a correct understanding of the identity of the Spirit, because that is how Christ is helping us right now. If you misunderstand the truth about God and think that the Holy Spirit is someone besides Christ, you totally miss out on what God is trying to accomplish and the benefit of what Christ is trying to minister to us as a man. Then it says here, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Not only that, but it also says that he was made perfect. Was Christ perfect as the Son of God? Yes. yes. But why does it say here he has been made perfect or he was made perfect? It was through the things he learned and then he became, you know, was made perfect. It's talking about him as a man. He perfected a human life Amen. in which sin could find no way in. Amen. As a man, he accomplished that. And to accomplish that, he went through a very hard time, an extremely hard time. We cannot even imagine what it's like. That's what qualifies him to become the author of eternal salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith. When did he author it? It was promised in Genesis. When did he author salvation? When he came as a man, as he's going through this experience, he's authoring something. Something is coming together. An experience is being developed in the life of this human being day in and day out for 33 years. When did he finish salvation? When he said, it is finished. And now you have the complete package of salvation. Amen. Salvation is the life of the son, the experience of the son as a man. And he takes this to heaven and says, now I can be their priest. And as their priest, what I'm going to offer them, what I'm going to give to them to overcome the devil is my own blood or my own life. This precious package 
that I went through so much trouble and heartache to accomplish for them. That is what we know as the spirit or the life of the son. That's the package of salvation, brothers and sisters. That's why he is the author and finisher of our faith. It's his humanity that is the key to that. His glorious and wonderful humanity. And so Christ was made perfect for us. And then it says he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Did Christ need to learn anything? We have an idea that God knows everything, all things. We have a word for it, a fancy word for it, that God is omniscient, all-knowing. So what does it mean that Christ had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered? I want to look at a couple of verses in light of that. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God cannot be tempted, correct? The Son of God, is he in the image of God? Could the Son of God therefore be tempted? Now, we have some murmurs that I didn't make out. Maybe some yeses and noes. Just think, listen carefully to what I'm asking. The Bible says God does, cannot be tempted. The Son of God, the divine Son of God, who is the image and the express image of His Father. Therefore, could He be tempted? The answer is no. In order for Him to be tempted, He had to take on something that He did not have as the divine Son of God. He took on humanity. That's why Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. It's his humanity that enabled him to do that. There is a certain experience that the Son of God had to go through as a man, and in going through it, he learned the strength of temptation, and he also learned how to defeat temptation. And this knowledge, this wealth of knowledge, so important to us as human beings, he did not take to heaven to store as a trophy of what he did to Satan and leave it there. The whole point of it was to give it to us. And so Satan comes up with the idea, oh, you know what? The Holy Spirit is a different person to Christ. Christ went to heaven. He can't deny what Christ accomplished. He went to heaven, but let's leave him there with everything accomplished there. He sends to you someone else. Someone who was not tempted in all points like as we are. What good is that to you or me? It might be nice, but it doesn't help us with sin and Satan whatsoever. Christ's humanity is the link to us. That's how he defeated Satan. Uh, that is why we find a very interesting aspect. When we look at the Roman system, I just want to mention that in passing. The Roman system have a mass, right? They do that every week. They do it even more than that, but they have this Mass, and this Mass is referred to the sacrifice of the Mass. And what it is, is basically a reenaction of the death of Christ, where Christ is offered repeatedly. It's called the bloodless sacrifice. Christ is offered again and again. And the focus is always on the death of Christ. It sounds very noble, it sounds very good, but it's actually very dangerous. Because the Scriptures actually tell us that Christ accomplished that only once. We don't need to have him sacrificed and suffer the death of the cross again and again and again. Scripture makes that very clear. Hebrews 9.26, For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all. He appeared at what time in earth's history? At the end of 
the world. That's why I ask you the question, when did the end of the world start, or the time period referred to as the end of the world? From the cross. Right? That's what the verse says, right? And someone say, well, brother, you know 1798, and what about 1844? I'm just telling you what the verse says. According to Paul, the end of the world began when Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's the last days we're living in that. Now we're living in the very last portion of that, I realize I'm not discounting prophecy, but we have this idea of looking at things in our perspective. God looks at the whole picture. And from God's viewpoint, the end days began when his son came and conquered sin and Satan. That's it, we're in the tail end now. There is nothing more that needs to be accomplished as far as sin and Satan are concerned. It's just that God's people need to get it. And that's why understanding the correct ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. It's just what we need. <clears throat> Hebrews 8.3, I'm, uh, I'm going to speed up here because uh, we're getting close to the end. Hebrews 8.3, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. What does Christ offer? His blood or his life. The life in which he defeated sin and Satan. That's what he offered. Did he have that to offer before he became a man? That's why it was not possible for him to be a priest before he became a man. Because he would have been a priest that had nothing to offer. That's why we're talking about the sanctuary. The whole point of the sanctuary is what is taking place in the sanctuary. It's what the priest is doing. And the whole point of the priest is to, have, is to offer something. And what he offers has to do with dealing with sin. Christ obtained that when he came as a man. Hebrews 8, 6 says that. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. He obtained a more excellent ministry. What does that mean? It wasn't always there. It had to be obtained. How did he obtain it? Through much suffering and crying and tears and prayer. And he was heard because he feared. By learning obedience through the things that he suffered, even though he was a son. That's how he obtained this more excellent ministry. And in heaven, he now is the mediator of the better covenant. That's what we know as the new covenant, established upon better promises. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, the accuser of the brethren is silenced by the life of the Son of God and the Son of Man. Amen. Christ's life is the ultimate answer that shuts up every accusation of Satan. You realize that? That is the ultimate answer. That's why it says they overcame him by the life of the Son. That's my interpretation of the blood of the Lamb. Right? That's what the Bible makes clear. They overcame him. In that life is the answer to every single accusation of Satan. Amen. Have you ever suffered the accusations of Satan, heard them in your ears, telling you how much of a sinner you are and what you've done? You know, the only answer is the life of the son. Amen. That's, that's the argument. It's, it's a court case. The devil accuses. We only have one argument. We only have one thing we can present. The life of the son. Bang! Amen. He shuts up. Amen. No answer. 
That's exactly what Paul says. Beautiful verse in this context, Romans 8.34. Notice carefully the sequence here and the point he is making. Who is he that condemneth? Who is that? Satan, right? Notice the answer. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And what's the whole point of his intercession? Is to offer his life. That silences the accuser. And he, he gives you here all the steps that qualify Christ to make that intercession because he died as a man. He rose again as a man. He's sitting on the right hand of God as a man. And now as a man, he is a ministering priest who intercedes for us and says, here, take my life. It is righteous. It is complete. It has zero sins. Amen. Let's get rid of your life. Let's, let's try and, and get rid of this behavior modification program that you're involved in. Let's try and get rid of all these ideas that you're trying to change. Let's get rid of that life. It is useless. Let me give you my life. As soon as you have that, Satan shuts up. Wow. If we only realize what it means to have a human high priest, brothers and sisters. That's the point that really struck home to me. And that I pray the Lord will bring to all of our hearts. It was the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ that qualifies him to be this glorious and wonderful high priest. And none of this would have happened had he not come as the seed of the woman. That's why the seed is the, that one word is the summary of the entire gospel of salvation for mankind. For the first time in 4,000 years of earth's history, humanity now has a high priest. You realize that? For the first time, it wasn't there before. We don't realize perhaps the privilege of living in this day and age when we have a high priest. The people back before the cross, the best priesthood that they had was an earthly Levit Levitical priesthood. That's the best that they had at the time. They looked forward to the promise that would be realized. They, they knew there was something coming, but it wasn't there yet. It's here for us. Right now, Christ is doing that for us. Now, I want to share briefly, I'm, I'm basically finished with what I want to say, but I want to share briefly a little appendix, so to speak, uh, dealing with the spirit of prophecy. Someone might say, you know, this brother made a very good case, you know, but he didn't, quote, he didn't use a single quote from spirit of prophecy. And uh, we have sadly come to the place where we say, you know, say, look, you know, I, I believe the, the truth and I, I follow everything according to the Bible and spirit of prophecy. And that's a very commendable thing to say, and it's something that sounds very prudent, but it's actually quite tragic, I believe. What that means many times is that the authority and the word of Scripture is not enough for many people. We require some other confirmation before we believe what the Bible says. You know what I'm talking about? And so, if you are one of those, I, I want to share some spirit of prophecy statements. For the, so that everybody can be on the same page. But the evidence, brothers and sisters, in the scriptures is more than enough. And thus saith the Lord is more than enough. So we need to be careful in, in how we establish the foundation of our faith. What do we base our faith on? Anyway, it's just an observation that I found because it's a very common phrase. It's, it's so common that sometimes we don't have to think, say, well, brother, if it's according to the Bible and spirit prophecy, then yeah, sure, I believe it. Right? You know what I'm talking about? So just something to, uh, to think about. Let's look briefly here what this says. Review and Herald, 1883. 
I'm not going to go into great detail, I'll just read a few. Thus Christ, in his own spotless righteousness, after shedding his precious blood, entered into the heavenly sanctuary to minister in the sinner's behalf. That's what we just found in the scriptures, right? It doesn't mean that now the scripture is correct. Okay, that's not why I'm reading that. Okay, because many times that's how we treat the scriptures. We put it on a place where Ellen White has to confirm it before I believe it. And what we've done there is we've put Ellen White above the scriptures. And we abuse the writings that God gave to bless us. And we turn a lot of people off the truth by the way we act. So I'm not sharing this as confirmation of what we found. I'm just sharing this so we can see. The Spirit of Prophecy talks about these things. And it can only be in harmony with the scriptures. But the scripture is enough for me and I pray it's enough for you. Let's look at another one. This is, a, this is one that finds its place in a number of books. Spirit Prophecy Volume 4 is this where I'm reading it from. That's the old great controversy, right? After his ascension, our Savior began his work as our high priest. Says Paul, Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. When did that happen? After his ascension. This, like I said, finds its place in the Great Controversy, and it's in the number, all the different editions of the Great Controversy. Now there is a danger when it comes to the Spirit of Prophecy, and I want to address this danger quickly. Are we, are we still okay? Amen. We're almost there. We're also awake? Okay, I don't want to lose attention. I know it's getting close to lunchtime, and maybe we can see it on the table. We'll get there in a minute or two, just a few. But there is a danger when it comes to the Spirit of Prophecy, is that many times we do our Bible study by simply typing a search in the Ellen White CD. Did you hear what I said? We do our Bible study by typing search phrases in the Ellen White CD, right? You know what I'm talking about? Look, I'm guilty of that too. I used to do that, so I'm not, uh, I'm not saying you know, I'm better than anyone. Uh, but to many people, this is what a Bible study is. Let's just find a statement. Well, that solves it. To me, this is the lazy way to study. Because many times we are prone to misunderstand what the Spirit of Prophecy says when we don't truly first understand what the Bible says. Just simply finding statements like that does not really mean we understand what we're talking about. And so there is a danger. And we know that very well, don't we? When it comes to the issue of the Trinity, you, no matter how much Bible you present, people pull out a statement and that's it. That's it. You say, but brother, the Bible says... That. That's it. The statement answers... That's not Bible study. This is laziness. And in laziness, you are bound to misunderstand what God says. You will misunderstand statements if you study that way. And so there is misunderstandings that exist, even when it comes to this point. Uh, like I've discussed this issue with a number of people about the priesthood of Christ. And there is, there is, it seems to be, for some people, despite all the evidence, they still want to hold to the belief that Christ was a priest before he came uh, as a man. Uh, I'm not sure why exactly, but it seems to be an issue that is there. And in, in, in doing uh, discussions or having discussions with people, one particular statement that I've recently encountered is this one, which is recently released from uh, the White Estate. And this is what it says. I'll read it and see what you make of it. The priesthood of Christ commenced as soon as man had sinned. He was made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen this statement before or not. It's brand new. It's this year, right? Released this year. Nobody's ever seen this before. This was actually a diary entry that Ellen White had penned back there in 1891. And I found that some people have seized on this statement as proof and evidence that Christ was a priest before the cross. Is this what the statement is saying? 
And if it's what it's saying, then what do we make with the whole sermon I just spent the whole hour telling you about, huh? That's not my sermon, it's all the evidence that we saw in the scriptures. That's, that's the point. So what does Ellen White mean? Before I jump into conclusions, why don't we let her explain herself? Because we already saw that the priesthood of Christ had two particular parts or phases. This is in the context of the trial of Christ. This is what it says. The high priest was designed in a special manner to represent Christ, who was to become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ, up until that time, the first advent, was still to become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So if you put all that side by side, the answer actually becomes very clear. Uh, let me read that since it's up there. Okay, top left. We'll just put the statements we found so far. After his ascension, our Savior began his work as our high priest. And on the right side, it says the priesthood of Christ commenced as soon as man had sinned. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Yes, it does. So we have two options. Either it's a contradiction, one of them is wrong, or there's something that we don't understand, correct? I put it to you that what this statement is referring to is the promise of the seed. And in that promise is contained the promise of his priesthood. That promise began as soon as man fell, but it wasn't fulfilled then, was it? It was only fulfilled when he came as a man, and after his ascension did you fulfill that and begin working as a high priest. You with me? The next one says, Christ was to become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was the oath revealed to David. When did that fulfill? When Christ went in he to heaven. That's why when he was still on earth, it says he was made a priest after the order of... I'm sorry, I read them backwards. Uh, he was to become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so... <clears throat> We need to be able to rightly understand, brothers and sisters, not just the Bible, even the spirit of prophecy. The priesthood of Christ has two very clear phases, the phase of promise and the phase of fulfillment. Now we're living in the fulfillment of that promise. That's what qualified him to be our priest. Here it is from the Desire of Ages, years later, just so we don't misunderstand and we allow her to explain herself. By virtue of his death and resurrection, he became the minister of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Behold the man whose name is the branch, he shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne. That's the verse from Zechariah that we just quoted. And so Christ commenced that glorious work of priesthood that was promised from the beginning. He commenced that when he went to heaven as a man. I touched already on what he ministers and what he offers for us. But I want to emphasize it in the words that the scripture emphasizes it because we sometimes miss the point of the glorious truth that we have today. Here is a familiar passage, Colossians chapter 1. We all know it. We could even recite it by heart. But there is a point here I want to emphasize. Paul says, whereof I made a minister talking about the church. He's made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now stop, don't keep reading. I want us to think about this verse before we go on. Paul is saying that he has made a minister and part of his ministry, what he's ministering, what he's sharing is this thing called the mystery of the ages. This mystery has been hid. It wasn't revealed before. It wasn't known before. It was hidden. You with me? 
In other words, this is something brand new. Correct? What he's about to tell you is something he's telling you, I'm, I'm telling you a secret. This is a secret. The secret has been hidden from ages past. I am a minister now of the secret that God has revealed. What is the secret? This divine mystery of the ages. Verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you realize that this truth that we repeat so often, that we say sometimes automatically, without fully realizing perhaps what it means. Do you realize that that truth is a secret and a mystery that was hidden for all ages and only now revealed, as Paul says, God has now revealed it. Well, if someone would say, well, hold on a minute, brother. You're trying to say these people in the Old Testament didn't know this? I am not trying to tell you anything. You read the verse and you see what the verse tells you. God gave the people in the Old Testament precious truths in type and in symbol. He gave them the assistance of His Spirit. But brothers and sisters, Christ was not yet a man. The life that Christ defeated sin in was not yet lived. Paul is saying, listen, what God had promised and had contained in types and shadows now is realized, now it is revealed. It is that Christ can fully and completely live in you. In other words, the high priest, Christ Jesus, gives you and me his very own life. That's how he lives in us. That is the great truth of the gospel. We have that now, brothers and sisters. We have that as our reality. That's why Jesus says in John 7, 38 and 39, He that believeth on me, out of his uh, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. It was still hidden. It was still waiting for the fulfillment of the coming of the seed who would live as a man, defeat Satan as a man, go to heaven as a man, be glorified as a man, be our human high priest, and then give to us this Holy Spirit, which was not yet given. That's what Christ is now ministering as our high priest. That is why, in order for you to appreciate and understand the priesthood of Christ, you have to believe the truth about God. You can't really appreciate The Trinity destroys the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. In other words, the Trinity doctrine destroys the sanctuary truth, which is the foundation of our faith. So you might believe in the sanctuary truth as a building in heaven. You might even believe that there is a priest ministering there. But if you believe that someone else is living in you other than that priest, then the sanctuary truth is totally useless. That's what Satan, brothers and sisters, has accomplished. And this is what the comforter that Christ talked about is. I'm not going to go on. It's been covered by different presenters at the camp that the whole purpose of the gospel is to have Christ dwelling in us. That's what the high priest is doing. That's why he had to be a man. So I pray that perhaps through our study this morning, we have gained a fresh appreciation of what it means to believe in the sanctuary truth, of what it means to believe in the high priest. That's why I emphasized that our high priest is a human. We have a human high priest. That human high priest does not just reside in heaven. He wants to live in your heart and my heart. That's why the scripture says, God hath sent forth the Spirit 
of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's what the priest is doing. Satan has no answer to that. <clears throat> so my appeal is, let us, as Paul says, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. What gives us boldness? One, a member of our race, an elder brother of us, is sitting on that throne of grace. That's why we come boldly with confidence and assurance that what we ask will be given because we ask according to His will. We know it is God's will to give us His Spirit. He, his Son went through this whole experience for the very simple reason of giving us the Spirit. We know it is His will. And so we can have every confidence in coming to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.